Hello and welcome to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods, the show that tries to make sense of research methods to help me and you to understand them. I'm Dr. Donica Mullen, I'm a PhD clinical fellow at the University of Edinburgh and I research motoric cognitive risk, or more simply, I'm investigating slow walking speed in the presence of self-reported cognitive complaint in older people without dementia or mobility disability. You will all know by now that in these podcasts, we bring together a methodology expert and a dementia researcher who's put method into practice to talk about the why, how and benefits of different methodologies and provide tips on avoiding some of the pitfalls. Today, we're talking about surveys, a go-to standard used widely in research and in business alike. Perfect for when you need to question individuals, test concepts, reflect attitudes of people and establish their levels of satisfaction. However, you don't really want to hear that from me, and that's why we have an expert with us. So let's introduce our guests. Today's expert is Dr. Petra Boynton. Petra is a social psychologist specializing in international health research from a critical perspective. Over the past 20 years, she has taught, supervised, and undertaken research across the social and health sciences and development within university and community settings, as well as writing extensively about academic life, including publishing a book called Being Well in Academia, Hi, Petra. Great to meet you. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Thanks so much for coming along. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You seem to have a fascinating career so far. Thank you. I've been really lucky to go in lots of different directions I've been interested in. Um, I'm predominantly interested in methods and, and different methods and working with communities. But most of my research has been on sensitive topics and that's meant I've had to think very carefully about ethics and about sort of inclusion and I apply my work uh, by sort of doing advice giving and working as an agony aunt or advice columnist so that's given an extra level of trying to sort of make work accessible to people. I bet an amazing way of yeah bringing research out of these ivory tower type situations. You mentioned sensitive topics can you give me an idea what type of things have you have you talked about in the past? Yes, my early research predominantly in surveys was sort of working around sexual and reproductive health and trying to find ways to get people to feel comfortable answering very personal topics. And more recently, I've been working on pregnancy and baby loss. So that's been thinking more about grief and, and memorialising and, and sort of being able to make people feel safe and able to share quite um, sensitive topics with a, a wider audience that they want to reach. Wow. Yeah. OK, well, I look forward to talking to you more on that. On that. Thank you so much. Today, our researcher joins us all the way from Australia. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Larissa Bartlett, who is an Island Research Fellow at the Wicking Dementia Research and Education Centre at the University of Tasmania. Her PhD focused on the promises and challenges of workplace-delivered mindfulness interventions for employee health and performance. Now, Larissa leads the Island Study, a large 10-year prospective public health cohort study with nested interventions targeting modifiable dementia risk factors at population level in adults aged 50 plus. Hello, Larissa. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Danica. Well done. That's such a big mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> I was a wee bit worried that it, it, is it just is it the island study or is it spelt out I-S-L-A-N-D study? Or? Yeah, no, we call it the island study. Yep. Okay. Well, we are delighted to have you here and um, thank you so much for calling in with the time difference and everything. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, Larissa, I couldn't help but notice in the bio you provided that your fun fact was that you're, uh, quotes, I'm a £10 pom of Birmingham stock, which I assume means you <laughs> trip south at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, the um, I have a very 
big family in England, um, but I grew up my pretty much my whole life in Australia, and I think uh, had a, a wonderful childhood as a result of my parents deciding to head over the other side of the world. But it's given me the opportunity to have footprints in both countries, which is really uh, a great a great pleasure. And, and yeah. Amazing. I'm always... struggling to find a, a more interesting fa fun fact. <laughs> I'm sure there's I know. <laughs> it's always that line of how interesting do we really want to be with our fun facts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it always Tasmania where you were based or did you grow up in a different part of Australia? Uh, yeah, so we very first arrived in Sydney, but my, my father very um, got a position as a social worker on the northwest coast of Tasmania in the town oh. called Penguin. Oh, wow. Um, and then we, yeah, so we moved around a few different places in Tasmania, but we uh, grew up on, on this little island, um, which is actually where the island study is, is located. Mm. Um, I left as islanders do um, when I was in my um, late teens, early 20s and went off. And I came back in my 30s, had some kitties and, and discovered a research career. So I'm very uh, excited to be working on this island project. Yeah, in the yeah that's, that's right ideal. at the bottom of the world yeah mm. that's ideal that's the dream to get back to where you, a small a small place you grew up but have a, a a really what sounds like a really challenging and interesting uh opportunity there that's that's awesome uh, yeah mm. <laughs> now i think we should crack on with the show uh i don't want to uh, go into the into midnight in australia so um we'll, we'll start with our first segment which is called what do i know uh, we begin each podcast with me summarizing what I understand to be the method we're exploring, which of course today is surveys. Today I am feeling confident, although I suspect this is going to be more complicated than I first imagined. We've all completed polls and surveys. They seem to be a way to ask people what they think, but in a sort of more structured or focused way, essentially asking a series of questions. Maybe, maybe survey questions such as which flavor of ice cream best represents you? Or would you rather fight 10 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Uh, do you think pineapple belongs on pizza? These are all very important questions, but Petra, could you please correct me and properly introduce the method for us? Oh, I, I think you've done a great job, actually. I, 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 I wouldn't want to sort of change anything from the ducks and the horses, really. <laughs> um, I, interestingly, wh whenever I, I teach this, I have to actually write it down because, as you said, it's, it's not as simple as, as you think it is. So I've, I've written it down and I'm going to just read it to you. So what a survey is really referring to collecting a lot of information. So collecting and analyzing, applying and interpreting information from big groups of people or small groups of people. And you do it with structured questions. So that could be the yes, no answer. You know, do you like ice cream? Yes, no. Or on a rating scale, one to five, you know, rate this flavor of ice cream. Or you might have seen more recently, particularly with online surveys, or if you've been in shops or uh, airports or stations, sort of emoji thing where you click mm -hmm. the smiley or frowny face that shows where you best feel so that's still a rating scale but it's using sort of visuals within it or you can also use text responses um, so people could answer prompts but you're giving them quite specific prompts usually to respond to and you can do this work on or offline okay and what why would someone maybe choose surveys do you think or what's your experience of that in the past what motivated people to use surveys i think the main reason and 
it's always been true, but the pandemic has definitely made a difference to this, is that it's seen as very quick and very easy, particularly with online surveys. And I think when we sort of hit a situation where it was harder to reach people, then, you know, it seemed the most logical way that you could put something online and send out a link and people could respond. Um, it's very familiar. We're mostly um, used to sort of filling in rating scales or quizzes very popular, people like doing those sort of quizzes and answers. So all of that, I think, are the reasons why people are drawn to it. But as you said, there's a kind of twist in the tale with this bit, is that, that all of those reasons are deceptive in that it's actually complicated and challenging and difficult. So uh, I think I would say to most people, I wouldn't assume it's quicker and easier just because we're so familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's something that I was never that clear on, and it's what is the difference between polling and surveying? Or is it just, just terminology? It, it, no, it's, it, it, there is a mm. difference. So a poll is usually a couple of very quick questions. So they're normally done to gain you know, a, a general answer uh, on something quite simplistic. So you know, what do you think of a prime minister or what do you think of a, a, a choice of food or something like that? Um, a survey is more wide ranging, it tends to be not necessarily reaching more people, but it's going into more issues in more depth. And the que a questionnaire, which is another sort of term that comes up in this, is the tool that you'd use to do the measuring. Um, okay. So quite often there's lots of words that are used interchangeably. Quite often people use survey to mean questionnaire and poll together. And, you know, I, I think as long as we understand what we mean, that's okay. Okay, brilliant. Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, now, Larissa, I'd like to bring you into the conversation, if I could. Could, could you tell us a little bit about your research? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Danica. Um, there's a very good match with the Island Project and this topic of surveys. Um, really, um, So the Island Project is a population-level dementia risk reduction health promotion program that's taking place in Tasmania, which is the uh, an, an island uh, off the bottom of Australia, the, Australia's only island state. It has a population of about half a million people and a uh, health profile that is a bit older and less well-educated and a little bit uh, um, less well-off, I guess, than the rest of the other states and, and territories in, in Australia. So it's quite a good environment to have a look at the health and lifestyle factors that we understand to be related to uh, contributing to dementia. So given this is a dementia podcast, it's, I guess it's very topical. Um, and so we've established this um, population-based study. The only way we can reach all of these people really is using um, online technologies and, and uh, surveys. So our goal is to have um, a really, so I guess, our goal, initial goal was to reach 10,000 people with the island messaging, which is the health promotion component, and then to include a good proportion of those people um, to in research associated with the effectiveness of a health promotion campaign. So the goal is to, I guess, understand what people know about the potential to reduce dementia risk and then recruit them as part of a long-term 10-year health promotion study and increase what they know by providing them with all sorts of different ways of educating, I guess, or, and opportunities to participate in, in risk reduction activities. So it's, big, it's a big project. Um, we have 8,000 
baseline, people who've provided us with our baseline. And the baseline is surveys. So essentially what we ask people to do is come on board and tell us um, what their own health histories and demographics are and tell us what they know about the potential to reduce your risk of dementia through a survey with a series of structured questions, uh, what their motivations might be to change their behaviours related to uh, dementia risks, also through surveys. And then we have another survey which is asking them about their behaviours and what they do in relation to how they manage their uh, blood pressure and um, cholesterol and their sort of cardiometabolic health, their physical activity, their diet. So we collect a lot of information from our participants about their health and their behaviour and their lifestyle. And we've got 8,000 people. And I just don't think there's any way we could have achieved that um, without using the survey method and using our online approach. Um, I've got so much I could say. There's so much about this study. But I guess um, one of the things that we need to be able to do is, is uh, find out, well, what our goal of the study is to find out what people know and what their behaviours are and, and see whether we can change them. So our baseline is really to ca uh, characterise what the Tasmanian adults' um, dementia risk profile or modifiable dementia risk profile might be. And then track them over this long period of time, but we also need to understand whether what they're telling us is really uh, um, related to their actual health. And so, one of the things about surveys is we can collect what, what I'm saying about myself, um, but it's really important to validate that information, um, particularly when you're looking at health outcomes and in wanting to inform some policy on the other side. So we use other forms of data as well in the island project. And what what is it is it linkage to to family medicine GP data or or what what are what are the other methods as well? That's um, down the track I think with linkage. Cool. So we we started the study uh, in 2019. Um, we are we've got about so we've invited the participants when they come back to do their annual surveys to join other parts of islands. And so we've got, um, I think, just under 1,700 people who've provided us with a blood sample. And we've got um, cognitive test, like functioning data, co cognitive functioning data using online um, testing. So, you know, the CANTAB um, online battery. So uh, using those methods, again, to collect the cognitive functioning. And then we'll use those functional data with the biomarker data and the behaviour change over time to look at whether the changes that might be happening through a health promotion campaign are actually leading to a risk of a lower actual risk of dementia over yeah in the long Brilliant. term. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a really yeah you're gathering the baseline evidence of first what people's understanding is instead of teaching people what they already know so you can focus your interventions and your modifiable risk factor interventions on on what they may need to work on and and, and that's a, like a perfect public health policy as well or, or the right way of doing it um and and a really good use of surveys and i have a few questions around it so and this is pure naivety i haven't done a survey but are there how did you target the people who received the survey or did it go to everyone over the age of 18 say or how did you know who mm. to send them to so we, we had a, um, anybody who's aged 
50 or over and lives in Tasmania could join the so we just had a big campaign to, to and and it's actually only just closing now so we've had mm -hmm. enrollment into the cohort open for three years um, mm -hmm. and we've done a lot of commu community engagement lots of talks in community a lot of media and social media and so on um, encouraging people so to come come and join um, yeah it's really it, it is really cool one of the things that because we use the survey method um, we're able to provide people with a thing when they've completed their survey which is like a report that tells them kind of a traffic light sort of version Brilliant. of a report that tells them against nine of the domains that they can do something about what the World Health Organization guidelines suggest they might do to reduce to, to shift into a lower risk category and so they take that and what we've found is that they um, a lot of our participants are talking to other people about what they're learning so um, that's actually something that we're trying to find out a way of capturing the real effect the, the flow-on effect of that kind of thing amazing and and do you find that out of the eight thousand or so who am i right eight thousand or so have completed the survey so far so it's, uh, there are about a half a million people in Tasmania, and if it's 50 plus, that's quite a good proportion of the 50 plus probably, is it? 8,000. And how do you know yeah. how, how representative it is of the overall population? Yeah, that's two really good questions. One is, uh, so uh, if we were to achieve 10,000, we would have had 5% of the population aged 50 and over. So that would have been kind of handy. Um, yeah. Then if we had, um, uh, uh, sorry, the other question was, or just around the national representativeness of it. Ah, uh, yes. Whether yes. that was a goal so, or not. Look, I think it needs to be. I think we then we know it's not entirely. We have because it's an online research program run by university people. We have people who are prepared to engage with that environment. Um, and there's no doubt that we have. We've actually done some looking at. Um, behavioural phenotypes, um, but and we have a much higher proportion of people in the cohort who have only one or two or maybe three risk factors, and then we've got a small proportion of the cohort that's got quite a few of them. So we, we're um, very aware that there is a skew. Um, we just need to account for that in our analyses, sure. and it also, um, I guess, gives us, well, what, what can we learn from these people? that we can then transfer into community, perhaps in a way that's more accessible. Sure. Um, but yeah, achieving, uh, yeah. So we have to work with what we have, but we understand exactly. that there are some limitations. Yeah. Sure, sure. I've yet to see a, a longitudinal cohort that doesn't, so <laughs> I don't think it exists. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's, and it's... To, and to it would be a dream to have true representation, but again, for us to be able to do this in the long term, we're trying to, as part of what we're doing is also creating, trying to create a sense of community in our cohort now so that they'll stay. And then, Great. yeah, so it'd be very, it's very hard to do uh, longitudinal studies with full representative samples, I think. Yeah, yeah, but so many interesting things that I could, threads that I could pull on from all of that. It's, it's fascinating. I think you've covered a lot of key things around surveys, even just that last point of ma maintaining your and, and reducing attrition by, making it worthwhile to take part because they are time consuming. Mm. 
Cool. So that's a really brilliant description of, of the method and, and a great example of how it's been used from, from Petra and Larissa. Um, so to get into the detail and provide some top tips for anyone new to using the method, um, I'm going to uh, ask some straightforward questions of both guests on how to put the method into practice. Petra, the first ones are for you. Is a survey a robust method to inform research, or do you think uh, there are better approaches? It's going to depend on your research question, but I, I, I could listen to Larissa talk about that research all day. It was just so fascinating to hear about the whole approach and how to get people involved. And, and for me, that's the bit I always find interesting about surveys. I think when people think about the survey or they're told there's a class on surveys, they think it's going to be something about, you know, maybe something about statistics or maybe it's something about design, but they're not really sure. And they, they see it's quite dry and boring. But that whole sense that Larissa was saying about building a community and getting representative people involved and how do you, the, the capacity to be able to get data, so much data online, but then who that might bring in or leave out. Those questions for me are the interesting ones. So I, I think it, any method can be robust if it's the right method for the question and we're using it in the right way. I think surveys get a bit of a bad reputation because again, when we were listening to the talk, you can, what's hidden behind that is it's taken three years to get those 8,000 people. The volume, it's not gonna be just Larissa doing this work, the volume of work to, find people and get them involved and keep them there and make them feel included and ensure their data is used and that lovely sense of them having not just a sort of involvement in the survey but the fact that they get some answers about their own health back so that they feel really included that to me is part of the sort of robustness in that it's making everybody feel part of the job part of the research we're sort of co-producing this project um, but I think what most people think about is probably what they do in a lot of cases, which is I, I need to find out something. It's just crossed my mind that I'm interested in it. I'll quickly type out a few questions tonight. I'll send that out on a link and that's my survey done. And then they suddenly find the question was phrased badly or nobody wants to reply. So there's an awful lot of stuff that has to be done very early on in surveys and people are I think always surprised to find to make it robust the amount of planning and designing and piloting the ethics you know thinking really really carefully about what you're going to do and who you're going to do it with and I think again crucially it could be a really good design it could be really robust it could be the right thing to be using but if the participants don't want to use it then you are kind of a bit stuck so that is also something I think people need to bear in mind that just because you would like to use a survey doesn't mean your participants would. And, and I found in my own research, sometimes, you know, we want to avoid a survey because we feel it's too constraining. We want to let people chat and talk, but actually they'd rather have the constraint of a survey, particularly on very emotional and sensitive topics. But equally, sometimes when you give them a survey, it's in the wrong language or it's designed in an inaccessible way and we can maybe talk a bit about that in a minute around how how to make it more accessible mm, I, yeah i'd love to think about that and you've mentioned some key things there about uh, when you're preparing to to produce a survey and before you just dive in and 
make your survey monkey and send it to everyone, which I'm guilty of in the past. You, you mentioned piloting questions, ethics around the questions, and then checking the design. Are there are there other key things that someone should think about before producing a survey? Yeah, I think I think one thing that people really don't think about often enough, and I think it's the way that we're taught research, is that we're always taught that it has to be new you know, that you've got to do something novel and people interpret novel as in everything has to be new. Mm. Whereas I think at the moment, if I was interested in trying to sort of do a, a tracking piece of work and find out how people were uh, coping and planning their health and their sort of health outcomes, you know, it would make sense that I would look at what Larissa has done and see if I can use that research model and maybe even the same questionnaires or adapt them slightly rather than thinking, I'm gonna just start completely from scratch. Uh, in health and development and other areas, there's quite a lot of standardised measures we could be using, and that can make sense. We can use them alongside additional questions that we add of our own, or it might be that we take some time to develop a questionnaire ourselves. But I think it's certainly, it's not a quick method. I think people think it's really quick and it's easy, and it's about thinking of some questions, putting them into a, you know, either a paper questionnaire or an online questionnaire, and then off you go. Whereas actually you need to be thinking of kind of the end point. Why are you doing this? How long is it going to take? What do you want to happen from this research? Who is going to be in it? How are you going to find them? You know, is a survey the best method for them? And if it is, in what format? Is it online? If it's online, do you need video? Do you need audio? Do you need descriptions? Do you need text? You know, do you need visual scales? Um, you know, how are you going to instruct them what you want them to do? If it's pen and paper, how are you going to do that? Is it postal, old fashioned? But, you know, in pandemic days, lots of people went back to that. Right. Are you going to use a researcher? You know, is somebody going to be there on the phone or on the computer typing in the answers or sitting by the person? Um, all of those things will make a difference to how many people join in and how included they feel. So I think a lot of the time uh, people assume because it's an easy method and they've done it a lot. They don't really need training. Um, they don't really need much help. They can maybe read a book or do a quick, you know, just try it themselves and, and see how it works. So, yeah, I think that would, would work, you know, in, in terms of thinking about what, what makes it so interesting for me is also all of the stuff that goes into making it robust. Mm, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, one thing is so many good things to ask yourself before divine. I, I imagine if most PhD students ask themselves those questions, answer them right and thoughtfully, that they'll be off to a very good start. So another part of a, the start of a survey is the introduction. And we've, we've you've both mentioned about keeping participants involved in a study or having them complete a survey once started. And I imagine the introduction is maybe where you get get that across the importance of it and things. So are there is there a certain approach you think is helpful when writing an introduction to a survey? I think before you even write anything, again, it comes back to who are your participants? What are their specific and diverse needs? And there may be multiple needs. So it's, this may not be just one approach. There might be lots of ways you're going to need to reach people and in lots of different places. And then how are you going to reach them? So, um, you know, that, that's your recruitment strategy. And again, I think a lot of people forget that you need to do that. And it's probably why if anyone's on social media, you see endless calls each day of please complete my survey with a link. You know, there's no information on the survey. You don't know what the link's going to be about. Half the time, it's not in any way relevant to you. 
but people are just desperate for numbers. And I think you need to think about, um, are, are we getting the right people? So, uh, I mean, Larissa was really clear in describing who were the people that needed to be, you know, the age group, where they were, where they were located, what they needed to do. Those are the things to think first. And then you need to think about how can I make this interesting and inviting? Um, I, I found quite often there's a disconnect between what charities or universities or organisations think is a priority. And that's lots of disclaimers and long, long winded explanations <laughs> and loads of logos. And every partner in the study has got to have a logo on there. And participants can be less interested with the very long ethics committee number and the fact that you've got this approval and that approval and you're this many ranked in the world in the university and there's 57 <laughs> different icons in your, your description. They want to know, you know, what's in this for me? Why should I sign up? Why is it interesting? So the bonus of this might tell you something about your health or you could help other people or that it might be something fun to do. Um, but this is really why we want you. And because we really want you, you can join in in different ways. You can join in in different formats. Maybe you've got a video of a researcher chatting and saying, hello, you know, here I am. Would you like to join in my study? Um, certainly, I, I think we need to think again about various ways. So you've got the kind of advertising aspect. So, you know, across social media, maybe on mainstream media, through other networks, through friends, through word of mouth, through sort of snowballing, all sorts of different ways. How do you want to get it out there and how have you made sure that's accessible and ethical? Because quite often people will share a link to something that's really sensitive. I mean, even something, say, we're thinking about dementia that um, say if I'd recently been diagnosed or I was worried about a relative and suddenly popping into my timeline is a dementia mm -hmm. study. That might make me feel very excited or, or happy that there's something I can join in with and help with my worries. But equally, I might feel really anxious that mm. how did they know about that? Or, you know, I'm, I'm upset enough about this. And now there's this piece of research just dropping in as if it's not even mm. a, a big deal for me. So there's a whole thing of thinking around getting the information out there. And then when you are sharing information, is it done in the right languages that people speak with different people that are appealing to them, that people seem like them, that they can relate to in different ways that we all feel like if I wanted to join this, it, it's not as simple as clicking a link. I think that's the big mistake people make. They think if I send a link, people will click on it, they'll join in. It's There's a connection, there's a relationship, there's a, you know, a, a building. And that's the thing that takes the time. That's where it goes wrong. And I think when we teach surveys, we do a real disservice in not unpacking it. This, this to me, as you can see, is, is the fascinating part. Mm -hmm. I love talking about this. Um, but we don't teach this routinely. And then when you do your survey and inevitably nobody joins in or people complain or they get angry or they don't join in or they, they say it's boring, you know, and you're panicking that you've only got three people and you wanted 300. Um, all of that's making you feel like you failed as a researcher, whereas actually, if someone had taught you to build this stuff as carefully as you would if it was a trial or if it was focus groups or if it was any other method, I think we'd probably be much happier researchers. 
and there's plenty of room for improving the happiness of researchers <laughs> in the world so that's, a, that's a nice way to finish on that okay thank you so much again so so much richness now i'm gonna i'm gonna just ask a few quick fire questions then just to yep. see if uh, maybe there aren't any but uh, do you do you recommend any particular platforms for um developing a survey and sending i, I guess i'm thinking online surveys um, I, I think the key thing to note is if you're in a university, a charity or another organisation, they may have a preferred serve, a platform you must use. So always check that first. Um, I generally don't recommend platforms because I think that, that actually you need to be looking at who are your participants, what's the most accessible platform for them. And again, it may be that an online survey is not right for you. In Larissa's case, I can't think of any other way to do it. But in other places, it might be, uh, you know, an, an interviewer sitting there with a laptop is the better way and they would be using an online platform, but mm. participants wouldn't. So it's about, you know, choosing the platform, but also choosing what data is generated from it, because I think we tend to think about front end. Does the platform let me ask the questions? But you need to think about back end, which is what is it going to give you in terms of data? If it's all scrambled and hard to follow or you've got to do loads of recoding, you might want to investigate others. So again, that's another thing to think about. Brilliant. And you've sort of alluded to it there as well, that sometimes online isn't the way forward. Other times it's, it's ideal. And you mentioned earlier about during the pandemic, there were some more postal surveys being done and mm. uh, slightly more old fashioned. Are there any particular considerations for a postal survey, such as text size or readability or things that online you can kind of get around maybe by using some translating app or something? Is there, are there certain things you need to consider now with a postal one? I think that the biggest thing with postal surveys is they are very, very unreliable in terms of response rates. So, you know, it, it, I would I would say that if I, I would only use them if it's really what participants want. And and yes, you absolutely have to think about um, only printing on one side. So if you print on both sides, mm. quite often people miss the second page. So one side, big fonts, much bigger than you think you're going to need and very clear instructions with worked examples. So don't say to somebody, to tick this answer because they don't know whether you tick at the side or in the box you know you have to show them what you want them to do but it's interesting you mentioned about font size and things for online surveys because again i think a lot of people don't think about accessibility and they assume that everybody can ex you know expand text in their on their screens a lot of people do these surveys on their phones so actually using visuals using one question per page there's lots of things you can do to make it much more accessible it looks longer, but it actually goes quicker. Um, and again, thinking about uh, either video descriptions, so people are showing you what to do, or um, if people are using screen readers, a lot of online surveys are terrible for screen readers. So, you know, you've got to think about that too. Okay, amazing. Okay, well, thank you so much for those those answers. So much to consider and, and so much good guidance. Um, Larissa, it's your turn. Are you ready for a few similar quick fire questions? Sure, hit me. Well, many many of our listeners will be seeking the views of, of older people, carers or, or those living with dementia. Um, what special considerations extra that, that haven't been kind of discussed do you, do you need to make to get input from these people? Such an important question. Um, I think I'm not sure I can... I just need to reiterate what Petra's been saying. It, you really have to know who you want to, you really need to know what your research question is and who it is you need to ask the questions of and then put in place as 
a recruitment and a participant engagement and management strategy that suits those people. I would not be expecting anybody who has dementia to be participating in Ireland, although I suspect that in time, over the 10 years of the study, we may find that some of our participants will. And so we have a, there's there's a second component to Ireland, which is a, um, a, a di diagnostic clinic um, for dementia that's associated with the prevention clinic uh, study. Um, and so we have a way of, we ask people each year how they feel about their brain health and we provide information about how they can access advice from the clinic um, if they're interested in finding out more. It's not um, within my capacity as a desk researcher to provide the kind of sensitivity and care that would be needed to administer uh, a series of standardised questions um, for people who are living with, um, even with mild cognitive decline, really. Um, but that's what does happen in the clinic, and it's a research clinic. And those questionnaires, very, we have quite a lot of common questionnaires in Ireland and in the clinic. And so the questionnaires are uh, um, administered, but done so with a clinician or with a with a carer and and or with a carer present. So I think um, that necessarily limits the scale of the kind of studies that you can conduct with people uh, unless you've got a lot of money <laughs> um, but it provides a, you really just need to you know research do no harm do absolutely we, everything we do when we engage with our research participants is about um, we're, we're researching we're gathering their information to help make to inform knowledge and we need to make sure that what they get out of it is a sense of satisfaction and contribution. And yeah, I'm not sure what else I can say. It, it, I, I don't think that's the rule of thumb. I think you just have to be really aware and uh, be find out what needs to be done to make sure that you have that safety in place. Okay, that's really thoughtful and, and sort of considered advice. Thank you. Um, and a major challenge of surveying people, and we've, we've all sort of talked about it already, is, is ensuring you get enough responses. Now, you've had what seems like a fantastic response rate so far in Ireland. And what advice would you have um, for people to, to get more responses from survey participants? Yeah, it's a, it is a, it's a big challenge for us. Um, I think with every, every longitudinal study, um, we're trying things out. We're working, we're going into community to provide feedback um, in community and also for online to through webinars to our participants to tell them what we've learned from the information that they've given us um, and what we're doing next and what we plan to do with it. Um, so we combine a fair bit of the data collection with um, telling people what, what it is we're learning and, and thanking them for being involved. Um, we still, in that context, we've still got about half of the sample hasn't been back beyond baseline, which is a big, a, a, big, a very high attrition. So we're working, we've still got all of their, well, the other thing is that our only mode of communicating with our participants is by email. So we know that there will be people who provided an email that's no longer active. So there's got, there'll be a proportion of, of people we just actually can't contact. We wish that we had also collected a mobile phone number at the time of, it, of that baseline. 
Um, looking back on that, that would have been more than one mode of contact would have been a, a wise um, thing to have included in that baseline survey. Um, we've actually just decided that we're going to offer an incentive and um, just a five, five lots of $100 vouchers to Coldmire, which is a very um, easy, easy to use card um, okay. here in, in Australia. Um, and so they go into a draw if they complete the, the next wave of surveys coming up in October. So we'll be um, putting that out there to see whether it stimulates a little bit more engagement by people who haven't been coming back. We've got about 3,000 people who are just ironed on. They do everything we ask, which is great, but we need the others <laughs> in order sure. for it to be really interesting. I mean, more interesting. Sure. And you mentioned there um, collecting a, a second contact de detail. And I imagine it's not just a case of, oh, well, we just ask that now. I, I imagine there's ethics protocol and processes around that. But in, in your experience, what, what did the ethics committee look like or what would it look like for, uh, in, in, for those reviewing survey study applications? I think a lot of applications for research would be survey based. I think a lot mm -hmm. of... Uh, uh, um, and so the, I would imagine that people on ethics review boards would be familiar with the survey approach. So um, there may be some considerations about well, why have you chosen this uh, this this survey? Um, but that would be because the protocol doesn't defend the choice of survey sufficiently. Sure. Um, I think responder burden is a really big consideration. So. And it's something certainly in our study group because we collect so much information from people. It takes an hour to do the annual survey, so it is a lot, a lot of of time. Um, and so, what we've so in conversation with ethics, we've structured it so that people can finish a survey and then have a break and come back later, and they can start uh -huh. back again where they where they left off. I think, um, yeah, that responder burden and making sure that there's a good fit, and also some questionnaires can, as Petra was saying earlier, they can, uh, particularly if they get digging into a sensitive topic, they can be a little distressing. Mm. And so you need to wrap them up with support. And mm. so again, it's just that making sure that there's the safety of the participant is front of mind. Uh, and mm. from an ethical perspective, if you're not going to use the data, even if it's interesting, don't ask it. It's right. not fair to collect data from people just because Oh, you might also want to know about that, but you're not actually planning on using it, and it adds to this, um, yeah, the responder burden. When the island study was first launched, it was launched um, as a series of surveys, so it was kind of it, it was a string of surveys, and it was on um, within a the um, I'm at the Wicking Centre, and we have the the Preventing Dementia and Understanding Dementia MOOCs, and so the learning management system that supports those MOOCs is was using we use the surveys were kind of embedded in that learning management system but it and wasn't the MOOC, a MOOC is that the massive open online course is that the idea yes, the free sorry. free course yes. oh, oh yeah. yes cool. thank you acronym yep yep very fair pull up um but that learning management system is customized for people who are going in to do an educational program and that, that's what they're intending to do but the surveys were not set up with the same intention that, that, that didn't fit so people when they came to do the surveys were presented with something that was oh, I'm not doing a course okay. and so I think we lost a lot of people who might have been interested to start with just just that and then it wasn't in, so one of the 
um, things we did in that very first year was very quickly, um, we actually closed off re recruitment and we turned, we created an island home mm -hmm. using the learning management system, but actually creating, so every participant has their own profile page where their dementia risk profile is, is, is stored for each wave of surveys where they get, they, it's kind of, it's familiar. So mm. all of the study information that they want, plus the access to their newsletters and events that are coming up and things are all in the one place. So every time we assess, we get them to come back and log back into Island Home. Mm. And that I think has made, I really wish we'd had that in place when we first launched recruitment because we would have perhaps kept some of those people in the mm. first Mm -hmm. that's yeah that sounds like really good learning and, and adapting and then and then benefiting from yeah from reflecting on it sounds ideal um you, you've you've mentioned that it can sometimes take about an hour to complete the surveys i'm imagining there's a lot of information coming in a lot of data and how, how do you approach analyzing the results mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, which is, I, need, I need a client <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, clear the data so um, I'm very fortunate. I have worked with some awesome data managers and um, they, we, as Petra was saying before, the planning that goes on behind the collection of survey data is just is so much work that goes on. So we, we're not just planning all of the experience out the front. We're also planning how the data is going to be collected and managed, particularly for a long-term project over time and, and with a complicated rolling baseline. So um, what I do is I, I, I talk to Tim and Alex who do a fantastic job of documenting and, and securing the waves of data and I ask them to give me access. So there's nobody in the island team that accesses the raw data from the survey because of the complex mm. nature in, of the way in which um, it's collected. Um, so it's, it's, it's held under some fairly strong, strict data management protocols and we send a request in and I want these data, these variables for this reason, I'm going to do this with it. And that way they know what shape I want, you know, that, that way they can provide me some information about the shape, how to interpret the shape of the data. So we, we clean it, we have a look at, you know, is, is, is what I'm looking at following a normal curve or is it skewed or whatever, so that we can understand what analytic strategy, the method we would use to answer the question that we've collected the data for. So you always intend to use this strategy, then you get your data and it might not be quite that shape. So, so mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's working out. Um, it, there's quite a lot of play, not play, uh, time <laughs> involved in doing that prep work. Um, and then, yeah, then you let it start telling its story. I love that bit. Mm -hmm. That that's, must be mm -hmm. so exciting when you just see the pattern than answering in real life. That's okay. Awesome. Um, the, the, the last we question is, and it's maybe related to that planning, how the data looks like at the end, but do you find that your survey in Ireland has, has more open-ended or close-ended questions? Uh, most of the data that we generate through the surveys is quantitative. So it's mostly numeric. Um, we do have short text responses to some variables which we can then code um, and, and treat and use in analyses. We then also in almost it, yeah where, wherever we feel like it might be whether we want to get some more information about the experience or we feel that patients might want to tell us something more about what happened for them 
Mm. We provide free text boxes. In I guess um, we've done some really um, great topic modelling with data that comes through from not so much through Ireland but through the Massive Open online courses, which is looking at the feedback from participants and um, doing some wonderful establishing of themes and mapping of, of the kinds of, of content that people um, discuss in those in, in those online settings. But we haven't so the doing the preventing dementia MOOC is one of the interventions within Ireland. But for Ireland itself, we don't collect a lot of qualitative data in the main um, in under the main study protocol. Sure. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. Okay, so I am going to try and recap some of that fascinating guidance um, stories of, of putting it into practice um, and, and general advice into my few top points for five, five learning points. Say. So for me, uh, some of the areas that I learned most about is that surveys can be as robust as many other research methods. Um, depending on the research question, they can be the most appropriate uh, approach. And, and the, But the important thing to bear in mind is that a good, robust, relevant survey, they are not quick to design. So although that's what everyone probably says and thinks at the outset, there can be a lot of work to ensure that it is actually a good service. Sure, anyone can produce a, a pretty rubbish survey in, 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 a, in a coffee break, but to actually have the right questions to design um, appropriate, ethical, thoughtful questions that will capture what you're looking for, you need to spend quite a lot of time. And that involves trialing the questions, piloting it, um, and tweaking as, as necessary. Um, along with that, so a second point for me was about the introduction section. So I think I probably had in mind that you said, oh, please, thanks for taking the time to answer these short questions, and this is how long it'll probably take you. But there's so much more to it. If you wanted a, a big a, a big survey that takes a lot of time, you have to kind of give something back to the participant and tell them what what the pros and cons are of taking part, things that they may, may benefit from, things that might worry them, things that might um, be an ethical an issue and, and explain that up front. And, and then and then as as one of the participants said to sort of to, to wrap it with with a safety mechanism around that a support mechanism around the survey so that, so that idea of a, of a much more detailed thorough introduction section um, is is really important and then finally we We've, everyone has talked about generating a sense of community among participants uh, and that, how that can help prevent withdrawal from the study and probably give a much bigger sense of uh, participation um, that, that for, for those who take part in a sense of community. So that can take any form, that sense of community, I guess, and it depends on what way it work for the participants and the, the people you're asking the questions of. So Larissa gave the example of having a a platform where each participant has their own individual profile where they can track their dementia risk and and i imagine how interesting and how much ownership that would give each participant over that data um, and the sense of um th this is this is a valuable thing i'm not just giving my information away to someone but it's being organized for me and that's a really good service to provide for participants um I know I've said finally, but finally, planning what the survey answers will look like afterwards. So this, the back end of the survey is also something that can take a lot of time at the, at the outset and probably a lot of planning meetings with data scientists and with the people who are going to be using the data. But it sounds like it's massively worth spending time on that beforehand. 
and that probably every minute you spend on that will save you an hour of pain and suffering afterwards when it comes to analyzing the data. Um, it, it seems like, yeah, if you can ask questions in certain ways, that will make it easier and more logical or even just possible to analyze at the end of the survey, then you'll be doing yourself a lot of uh, good service later, later on. So hopefully the information we've already shared will ensure you don't face any issues. However, in this final part of the show, we're going to discuss some common pitfalls, challenges and how to avoid them. Petra, what are the common pitfalls and how do you avoid them? Well, I think we've probably covered an awful lot in this discussion, um, but I would sort of sum up by saying one of the big pitfalls is trying to do this all yourself uh, without kind of any kind of testing or planning, you know, jumping straight in, thinking it's easy. I hope we've demonstrated that, you know, even if you're doing a very small questionnaire, not anything as large as Larissa is taking on, which is, is phenomenal. You know, even if you were doing a few, maybe 50 people or something like that, you still need the, the, the quality, the planning, all the work, working with colleagues, people who know how to do data, um, all of that stuff together, people who are experts in design is important. I think I would just add on top of that, ensuring the things about accessibility is, is really crucial. I know I've said that, but it, it is missed so often in research. And we've talked a lot about participant well-being and participant safety, but I think we also need to remember researcher well-being. And that might be that the nature of the questions you're asking is quite draining or demanding or upsetting. So you do need help, even if you're getting lots of quantitative data back, you're still thinking about what that quantitative data means, and that can be quite challenging. But separately, I think that if you've got low response rates or if you're struggling with your data or, you know, if it's a very stressful time or that, you know, in a lot of these projects, you're under considerable pressure to get lots of information in is making sure you're not coercing people in because you just need to get those numbers up and you're not being made to feel bad if you're not actually getting that information back yourself. So I think all of it's about it's really about getting supported. It's about being trained. It's about being supervised. It's having space to reflect and, and hopefully really enjoying the method. I, I hope we've shown through this discussion that it, it's, it's, it's so interesting and, and there's so many angles to it. If you've got other people you can share that with, it can really help on the days when it's, it's, it's a long, hard slog. It's a hard method to use. It's not an easy method. And Larissa, you have already covered a lot of really important learning points where and, and things you've adapted and changed along the way to improve the study. Are there, are there other things that you would like to impart on potential survey researchers that may help them? Uh, thank you. Uh, there is one thing, Donica, I would like to, to say. First of all, forgive the absence of my moving face. My internet connection is a little weak. Um, but the, um, the use of survey data for research is really powerful. We can draw our draw our conclusions from it. And then the benefit of having using the same measures across multiple studies, so the same questionnaires to ask the same, to generate data from multiple studies and pull that data together um, is undermined if you change your surveys, if you change the questionnaires. So the best thing, I, I remember doing a, a meta-analysis in my PhD where I went in and, I, yeah, I, it was so frustrating because it's quite common for people to adapt or change or adjust a, a, an established questionnaire um, with probably good reason to try and make it a little more relevant to their participants or to their research question. But actually what you're doing is undermining the ability to answer what a lot of people say 
in response to these questions, um, which is the great benefit of pooled data. So I guess um, there's a lot of work that goes into validating psychometric scales and, and uh, questionnaires that are used in social and behavioural research. And um, yeah, if you're going to adapt one, it would be yeah good to validate it. Um, but yeah, but it's it's yeah it was a it was a bugbear of mine doing a meta analysis of of uh, yeah data generated from measures that had been somewhat adapted. Mm -hmm. Okay, really valuable lesson, and it sounds like it'll prevent people reinventing the wheel if there's already quite a good a good survey there use it okay well thank you um yeah. folks this has been really really great i've learned so much and i hope our listeners have too it seems that clearly a, a well-built survey can provide valuable information but if you get it wrong you could be wasting your time and, and maybe more importantly your participants time um, hopefully listening to today's podcast has saved all of you yourselves some time in your jobs and some frustration and will help in your research um, just before we finish up, I just wanted uh, to ask Petra to give us uh, a quick rundown um, to tell our listeners in one minute what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. I would say go and look at surveys in the wild. We're blessed with so many of them now. So go and look at them. Think about what would you do differently? How would you, you know, who do they leave out? Who could they bring in? So that's one thing. If you've got any opportunity to, to be trained in surveys and you want to use surveys, I would always recommend it. You know, as we've heard here, you know, all of us do a survey and at the end think, I wish I'd done this differently. So talk to people who've used surveys, get trained up. And I would say I, I wrote a guide years ago, a three part guide that was in the British Medical Journal called the Hands on Guide to Questionnaires. And although it's a bit outdated now, the very basics of what we've been talking about are set out there. Um, and also Helen Cara has written a lovely little book. It's only $7.99 and it's called Write a Questionnaire, A Little Quick Fix. And that's quite a nice little guidebook to just talk you through the basics. But as I said, I would never attempt doing a survey small or large like Larissa's doing without a lot of support and training too. Okay, brilliant. Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. I, I would like to say a huge thank you to our guests. We've had the wonderfully helpful Dr. Larissa Bartlett sharing your experiences and in Expert Corner, the incredible Dr. Petra Boynton. Thank you both. It has been a real pleasure. If listeners want to know more about survey methodology or more about the NCRM, the National Centre for Research Methods, Dementia Research, or our guests today, you will find all the links in the show notes. And remember, if you found this useful and learned some stuff, then please share this podcast with your friends or leave a review online and subscribe to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm going to end the show by encouraging you all to complete our short survey to share your feedback on the show. Only joking. Have a great day.